This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like Language A to Z. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 58, titled Double, Double, Toil and Trouble, wherein Mike insults me over and over and over again because he just don't know no better. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. So recently, Bob, on the television show Face the Nation, this is that long-running political talk show on Sunday mornings on CBS, the host, Bob Schieffer, announced that his replacement this summer when he retires will be none other than Slate's very own chief political correspondent, John Dickerson. Woohoo! Yeah, great news. I happen to know John quite well because I produce a couple of podcasts that he does. One is a podcast about presidential campaign history called Whistle Stop, which is fantastic, and also Slate's Political Gab Fest, which is a public affairs weekly show that he hosts with Emily Bazelon and David Plotz. First of all, I just want to say that a smarter, nicer, more thoughtful, more humble guy than John you will never meet and congratulations to him. It's a great fit, I think. I hesitate to say he was put on earth to do this job, but it's a really nice fit. 
So many listeners of our podcast were no doubt wondering if he might be leaving Slate once he takes over this gig at Face the Nation. And in order to preempt those concerns, David Plotz, former head honcho at Slate, current big cheese at Atlas Obscura, he tweeted the following. No fear, Slate GabFest fans, John Dickerson ain't going nowhere. Ain't going mm-hmm. nowhere. Yep. It's both a vulgar contraction and a double negative. Right. And when I read that tweet from David, it reminded me of that very famous movie line. I'm not sure if you know what I'm talking about. It's iconic. Famous movie line. Iconic. Uh, You're going to have to give me uh, a little help here. Okay. I am going to play a song for you from your childhood that might help you identify the line that I'm talking about. Okay. All right. First of all, fuck you. <laughs> That's Al Jolson from like, I don't know, 1928. <laughs> and that's not from my childhood. <laughs> and the line is, you ain't seen nothing yet. Is that it? Well, before we get to the line, I just want you to admit that it's been a while since I've made a Bob is old joke, right? Eh, I don't know. I don't remember because it was before and I'm so old I don't remember, Yeah, you know, the passage of time. Right. But I just, I want you to keep in mind that I am married mm-hmm. with a child. There is talk of more children to come. And so I just want you to know that I don't have any simple pleasures left in my life. And this is one of them. So please indulge me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean you, you stopped having fun? <laughs> Because you were thrust sort of headlong into the uh, the grind of the middle class. Yes. And exactly. your one remaining pleasure in life is to ridicule me in the final days of mine. Is yes. that basically the situation? I couldn't have said it better myself. Of course, you won't remember any of this tomorrow. <laughs> I but... certainly will not. <laughs> yes. So, yes, that was Toot Toot Tootsie Goodbye, sung by Al Jolson. In the Jazz Singer, which is from 1927, not 1928, it's the very first, considered the first feature-length talkie, as they called them. And the song, incidentally, is about a guy who is bidding his lover adieu at a train station. Yesterday I heard a lover sigh, goodbye, oh me, oh my. Seven times he got aboard his train, and seven times he hurried back to kiss his love again and tell her, Toot toot tootsie, goodbye. Toot toot tootsie, don't cry. Not the most sophisticated songwriting, I would say. No, but such a poignant rendition by Al Jolson. Yes. So tender and uh, sentimental. It's uh, it's like a zephyr. It's like a dandelion uh, fluttering in the breeze. <laughs> One of my favorite comments on the YouTube page of this scene in the movie is from Beer Slayer eight sixty three. He says. 
People, quote, claim they don't give a fuck now. Truly, truly, they did not give one fuck back then. <laughs> Respect. <laughs> In any case, my point here doesn't have anything really at all to do with this song or even the movie. It has to do with what Al Jolson's character says right before he sings this song, which you almost got correct, not quite. It's one of the most iconic lines in movie history. In fact, one of Jolson's biographers, Michael Friedland, said that this line not only marked the arrival of what from that moment on became known as the talkies, it instantly, and I do mean instantly, killed off the silent cinema. So here is that line. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you. You ain't heard nothing. You want to hear toot 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 me? All right, hold on. Bob, there are a number of taboos in the English language, rules of our grammar, if you will, that proscribe the doing of something twice, right? Either because it creates a redundancy, like in the double comparative, more better is taboo, or because it creates a kind of zero-sum equation where one half is purported to cancel out the other half. Yeah, the double negative, Yeah, uh, which is uh, grammar as arithmetic. Yes, and that foreshadows something that I will get to at the very end of this episode. So one of the first language mavens to comment on the double negative was a guy named Robert Loth, who I think came up in one of our very first episodes, perhaps on the episode about ending sentences with prepositions. But in any case, in the late 1700s, he wrote a book called A Short Introduction to English Grammar, and he notes that there are two more or less major categories of double negatives, one of which is the one that I alluded to as having a zero-sum quality. In his words, in this variety of double negative, the two negatives, quote, destroy one another or are equivalent to an affirmative. And as an example, he cites two lines from Paradise Lost. Now, I don't know if it's been a while since you've read Paradise Lost or if you've ever read it, but just a little bit of context here. In the very beginning of Paradise Lost, Satan and his minions find themselves, they sort of wake up, banished by God in hell, in chaos, as Milton calls it. They've been defeated, and they're feeling dejected. And at some point, Satan gives them the rest of these fallen angels. They still have wings, after all. He gives them a pep talk. Awake, arise, or be forever fallen, he tells them. And they begin to rouse and bestir themselves. And then Milton tells us of this army that Satan is amassing. He tells us, quote, Nor did they not perceive the evil plight in which they were, or the fierce pains not feel. Now, there are actually two sets of double negatives in those two very brief lines. But not self-canceling. Yes, they are. They are both self-canceling. Nor did they not perceive the evil plight in which they were. Yeah, they perceived it. They understood perfectly well what was going on, and it was, you know, not going to be pretty. This was not slipshod use of language. This was Milton uh, using a rhetorical trick to emphasize their understanding by saying that they did not not understand. Exactly. So they are self-canceling. They destroy one another, as Robert Loth says. 
And the other set in there is, nor did they fierce pains not feel. In other words, Mm -hmm. they were in pain. Well, then I'm sorry, Mike, I guess I misspoke. I guess they are self-canceling, but what they were not is unintentionally self-canceling. This was done with malice aforethought for the rhetorical effect that I mentioned. I mean, as you know, Milton and I discussed this quite a bit. Right. <laughs> In fact, we were talking about it on the day we went to the movies to see, uh, you know, the end of uh, Silent Pictures. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Milty, you called him, right? <laughs> I did indeed. So what exactly is the nature of this rhetorical effect that you suggest, Bob? Let's fast forward to the early 1900s when one of the seminal works on the negative in language was written. It's called Negation in English and Other Languages. And it was written in 1917 by a Danish linguist named Otto Jespersen. Jespersen was an expert in English grammar. And Jespersen points out that this sort of double negative always changes or alters the idea that you're trying to get across. In other words, an idea as expressed using a double negative is, as he puts it, somewhat different from the simple idea expressed positively. As an example, he says that not without some doubt is not exactly the same thing as with some doubt. So as another example, in the late 1800s, Rudyard Kipling wrote a novel called The Light That Failed. It's about a painter who is going blind. And before he goes totally blind, he's determined to finish what is his masterpiece. It's a painting of a street woman named Bessie Broke, which is a fantastic name for a character. And Kipling writes, Bessie cursed under her breath. She had pitied the man sincerely, had kissed him with almost equal sincerity, for he was not unhandsome. Now, not unhandsome, which is what one might say of you, Bob, right, is clearly not the same thing as handsome, which more aptly describes me. So the question is, <laughs> what is this double negative doing exactly, right? Why do I do this? You know, Slate does not pay me that much money. <laughs> to be insulted me, by me? Every single episode. But it's okay. No, it's good. Because uh, payback, my friend, payback is a bitch. Or put another way, payback is not a not bitch. <laughs> okay. I think there are more insults to come, Bob. So hold off. You might want to wait to decide just what the payback is going to (laughs) be. So what exactly is this double negative doing? Jesperson believes that the, quote, detour through the two mutually destroying negatives implies on the part of the speaker a certain hesitation absent from the blunt, outspoken idea expressed positively, right? So not uncommon, not unhandsome, implies a certain hesitation compared to, say, common or handsome. Now, what is happening here can be described with a rhetorical term that I think has come up on this show before. It's called lydities, which is often referred to as understatement. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you remember. It's when you kind of soften a compliment or a criticism or an assertion with this double negative. And this, in English derives directly from a common practice in Latin of using expressions like non nunquam, which means not never for sometimes, or non nulli, which means not none for some. There are a whole bunch of expressions like this in Latin, and the English equivalent of it 
is more or less a direct descendant of that. Now, I agree that these double negatives where you want the negatives to cancel each other out, I agree that they can be overused and should be handled with care and with caution. But I would not go so far as to agree with the otherwise venerable George Orwell, who in his essay, Politics and the English Language, has a kind of special disdain for these double negatives, and in particular, the not-un construction. He says, banal statements are given an appearance of profundity by means of the not-un formation. Wow. Wow. That is sweeping and harsh. (laughs) I agree. And, you know, it's like criticizing a figure of speech in general as opposed to its application. You know, why not just criticize uh, irony or or hyperbole? I mean, come on. I totally agree. And in fact, he, he even suggests memorizing the following sentence as a way of curing yourself of the temptation to use this not un construction. He says... A not unblack dog was chasing a not unsmall rabbit across a not ungreen field. Yeah, he's just being a dick. Yeah. Yeah. And look, Orwell is a god for any English speaker I who agree. really enjoys and cares about the language. But I think you're right here. He's just being a pedant and he's a little off course. As an argument against his sweeping statement, I would offer one of my personal favorite examples of this not unconstruction. It's from Thomas Carlyle, who was a Scottish historian, and he wrote of Paris during the French Revolution, under all the roofs of this distracted city is the notice of a drama. That's notice, N-O-D-U-S, is the notice of a drama, not untragical, crowding towards solution. That is I think, a fantastic sentence, all the better because of that double negative. I'm going to read it again. Under all the roofs of this distracted city is the notice of a drama, not untragical, crowding towards solution. I would say that the rhetorical effect of these two negatives, yes, is to cancel each other out, thereby yielding a muted, a hesitant affirmative, but not an affirmative, I would suggest, that is less potent or falsely profound. You just, uh, just kind of did it. Yes, I said not less potent, not <laughs> falsely profound. Right. Uh-huh. Now, you, of course, hold out something very erudite like Thomas Carlyle. I have to turn to where I first encountered this construction, and that was in the mid-60s, let's just say early 60s, I was reading a Peanuts panel. And it was, I'm pretty sure it was Charlie Brown. And if I had a few minutes to think about it, I'd be able to come up with the right quote. But he said, not unlike. Hmm. And it puzzled me at the time. But, you know, even my eight-year-old self was able to divine that there was this almost paradoxical softening and yet calling attention to mm-hmm. that this wording achieved. And it stayed with me. And I use it myself every now and then. I mean, not enough to piss off George Orwell, but every now and again. Okay, let's take a short break and talk about our sponsor, The Great Courses. I used to say often that if it were socially and financially feasible, that I would be a lifelong college student. You can be with The Great Courses, lectures taught by some of the best professors 
from around the country, including the great professor of linguistics and comparative literature at Columbia, John McWhorter, who teaches a course called Language A to Z for the great courses. The conceit of this course is that each episode focuses on a word or a phrase that begins with a different letter of the alphabet. So for example, B is for baby mama. That episode uses that phrase to talk about African-American vernacular English and what the phrase baby mama says about grammar. The D course is about double negatives. I think that I listened to the course about Aramaic twice because it has so much information about this language that was once the lingua franca of the Middle East. And in fact, Jesus spoke it. It was featured in the Mel Gibson movie about the life of Jesus. And it eventually gave way to Arabic, which is, of course, now the most widely spoken language throughout that region. And Aramaic, while it's still spoken in areas of Iran and Iraq and Syria and even here in the United States, it's considered by most to be a kind of dying language. The whole episode is just packed with information. And you can order from eight of their best-selling courses, including Language A to Z, at up to 80% off the original price. So don't wait. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, let's flesh out a little bit more what exactly this double negative is doing and why you might want to use it, George Orwell and other detractors notwithstanding. So there's a linguist at Yale named Lawrence Horn who has written a lot about negation and the negative, and he comes up with a number of reasons why this might be useful, and I'll, I'll give you a few. And let's, for the sake of simplicity, focus on the not unconstruction, although you can extend this to, say, the construction that Milton used. You can extend it to the not-not construction that you alluded to. In fact, there's a Simpsons episode in which... Homer, through some series of events, becomes a missionary in the South Pacific, and he takes to licking these hallucinogenic toads. And at one point, uh, Bart says to him, Dad, are you licking toads? And he says, I'm not not licking toads. (laughs) (laughs) This, by the way, has just exploded in the last couple of years, this not-not thing. I, I used to hear it never, and now I constantly heard it you uh, hear it done to exactly that kind of comic yeah. effect and uh, you know i think we're richer for it yeah I, I would agree and so let's just use the not on as a stand-in for some of these other constructions the first reason you might use it if in the construction not on x if as lawrence horn says if you're not sure that x holds or you're sure that it doesn't So, for example, if I'm not sure, Bob, that you're handsome when I look at you, or I'm sure that you're not handsome, I might say that Bob is not unhandsome. Wait, wait, wait. If you know that I'm ugly, you're not going to say Bob's not unhandsome. Right, but I'm not suggesting that you're ugly. I just might know that you're not handsome. Hmm. And there's a difference. Another reason why you might want to use this is if you know or strongly believe that X holds, but you're too, as Horn says, too polite, modest, or wary to mention it directly, right? So if people, as they often say to me, if people tell me, you know, Bob, he just seems so pretentious from, 
your episodes that you do with him. I strongly believe that that's true, but I might be too wary. Of course, this is theoretical. I would never be too wary in real life, but I might be too wary to mention it directly. And I might say, well, Bob, right, he's not unpretentious. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am taking note of your examples, by the way. But okay. Just, yeah. You know, proceed. <laughs> proceed. <laughs> it gets better. You might also use it, Horn says, if you want to purposely avoid brevity and be a little lengthier for whatever rhetorical reason. Or just playful. Or playful, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes extending an expression is a form of playfulness. You might also want to use it if, if the un-x word that you're using has no real equivalent without the un. So, for example, people are also telling me a lot, you know, Bob, not only is he pretentious, but he's like, he's kind of off his rocker, don't you think? He seems crazy. And I'll say, wait, 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 come on. Bob is a lot of things, but he's not unhinged. Now, hinged as a word, Mm -hmm. it's a word, Mm -hmm. right? But you wouldn't use hinged to mean sane, but you would use unhinged to mean not sane. Bob is so hinged. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, you're right. So there's no real equivalent of unhinged without the un. Now, a final reason you might want to use it, is as a rebuttal. So people often tell me Bob seems unkind. Fuck them. Yeah. And I'm like, look, again, Bob is a lot of things. He's unfunny. He's unintelligent. (laughs) He's unattractive. He's unappealing generally, but he is not, not unkind. Excuse me one second. Uh, Waiter, check, please. Could we we get the bill over here? I'll be leaving. (laughs) (laughs) So you see, there are a number of situations, a number of uses for this construction and for the canceling out construction that Milton used and that Homer Simpson used and others like it. However, this is not what David Plotz was doing, and it's not what Al Jolson was doing, right? No, they were talking in the vernacular. They were talking in... You know, street parlance. They were just talking the way people talk, especially anomaly unsophisticated people. It's just, you know, it's a vulgarism that turns out to be just extremely useful, again, for rhetorical effect. Well, reserve your judgment about it being vulgar or not vulgar for just a moment. But what Plotz was intending to mean when he said that Dickerson ain't going nowhere was that Dickerson is in fact not leaving Slate. He's not leaving the political gab fest. Even though, pedantically, you could parse it to mean the exact opposite. Yes, but I mean, the point is that if your English teacher were grading it with red ink, it would be changed to he isn't going anywhere. Right. Thus eradicating the double negative, rendering it into correct English usage, and entirely denuding it of color and impact. Right. Exactly. That's what your teacher would do. And let's just be clear. So the double negative, as used by, say, Milton, resulted in an affirmative, whereas David Plotz's double negative results in still a negative. Right. It's arithmetically impossible. So let's go back to Robert Loth, who says that this type of double negative is, quote, a relic of the ancient style abounding with the negatives, abounding. In other words, it used to be that not merely double, but multiple negatives were pretty common. So if you remember from your ninth or 10th grade English class, when you may have read the Canterbury Tales, Chaucer writes that the knight, 
and I'll paraphrase here, that the knight was brave but sensible and that he comported himself with humility and, and now I'm quoting directly, nay, never yet no villainy he said in all his life unto no manner white, which translated into modern English means he never said a bad word about anybody. Nay, never yet no villainy he said, he never said a villainous or rude word, in all his life unto no manner white, in his whole life against any sort of person. Nay, never, no, no. Four negatives he uses here to do the job of one. In Twelfth Night, for example, Viola says, By innocence I swear, and by my youth, I have one heart, one bosom, and one truth, and that no woman has, nor never none, shall mistress be of it, save I alone. Hmm. Nor never none. A triple negation from Willie Shakespeare. You know, he may have just been confused with everyone running around stage in these uh, disguises, just missing one another at crucial uh, plot points. He he could have just been, uh, you know, scattered. In fact, Viola is in disguise during the scene in Twelfth Night. In any case, what's interesting here is that while these multiple negatives were very common at one point, Otto Jesperson, who wrote his negation book in, as I mentioned, 1917, he notes that this type of cumulative negation, where you have two or three or four negatives adding together to make an even more emphatic negative, that it more or less disappears in literature throughout the 16 and 1700s, but linguists start noticing it in the 1800s when it becomes fashionable among the working class, the Cockneys, in England with phrases like, I don't know nothing. The Merriam-Webster's Usage Dictionary puts it this way. They say, the old multiple negative and the common or garden double negative were passing out of literature in Loth's time. What was happening was that their sphere of use was contracting. They were still available, but were restricted to familiar use, conversation and letters. And since old forms persist the longest among the least educated, the double negative became generally associated with the speech of the unlettered. In modern use, the double negative is widely perceived as a rustic or uneducated form. This is precisely where we are today, right? The double negative is considered incorrect in English, but it's not considered incorrect or uncouth to have this sort of repeated or cumulative negation in many other languages, like some Romance languages, for example. Wait, 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 wait. Am I to understand that in French or Italian or Spanish or whatever, that it is not a blue-collar habit to use double negatives uh, to express an idea that is nominally self-canceling? It's not a thing in France, the down-market double negative? In some of the Romance languages and in other languages around the world, it's built into the structure of the language, this multiple negation, and it's perfectly acceptable. That's interesting because it might be the single most defining aspect of conversational English divided by class. And I wonder, you know, what what their thing is. Well, there there is, of course pronunciation and accent that we have in all languages that separate people by class, generally speaking, right? Of course, you get very educated people who still have what we might consider to be street accents. Mario Cuomo, for example, had a very thick New York accent. He was governor of New York. He was very educated. He was a lawyer. He was a lawyer. 
he, 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 such yeah. an orator. So Jesperson offers what he calls a pet theory about why this is the case, why some languages have this multiple negation built acceptably into the language and others don't. And he says that repeated negation seems to become a habitual phenomenon only in those languages in which the ordinary negative element is comparatively small. For example, in Old English, which had many multiple negatives, they were very common, you typically made a sentence or a phrase negative by adding just ne, N-E, or if I think the word began with a vowel, just the prefix N, the letter N to it. Similarly, in Russian and Greek and a bunch of other languages where multiple negation is common, there are these very small syllables or letters that you add on to make a sentence or thought negative. So Jesperson theorizes that, quote, the insignificance of these elements makes it desirable to multiply them so as to prevent their being overlooked. And he then draws a distinction between the comparative infrequency of the multiple negative in, say, English or German, where we have kind of phonetically distinct and clear words like not and nicht that have become, as he puts it, thoroughly established to suggest the negative. And in fact, if you think about it, in expressions in English where the double negative might be most common, they often involve a contraction. Now, that might be a kind of furthering of the sort of folksy nature of it, but it might be that the contraction has a comparatively small negative element, just the N apostrophe T, as opposed to a phonetically more clear, more distinct not. Mm. Getting back to where we started with all of this, which was David Plotz's tweet, where he said he ain't going nowhere. Was he just slumming? I mean, I, I do it. Sometimes for effect, I like to juxtapose kind of high-flown sentences with relatively uh, coarse street language. I mean, it works for me occasionally. This will amaze you. I even sometimes throw in a swear word. But is that all he's doing? And and by the way, should we be rolling our eyes at David for for slumming, which can be deemed as condescending? Tell me. I would say all of the above. Yeah, exactly. I think you hit on all of the relevant points there. I don't think that... I would necessarily call it slumming. I might call it using the vernacular in a way that politicians often do to make themselves appear more accessible, right? You don't want to come across as too erudite, as too distanced, as too educated. Too windsurfing. <laughs> exactly. Like John Kerry, for example. You don't want to come across that way if you're trying to appeal to the masses, to the people, right? So politicians often do that. They often use constructions or language that makes them appear more regular. This is this is not linguistic, but remember when President George H.W. Bush did a photo op at a supermarket and he yeah. was staggered by the scanner technology because he evidently hadn't been in a supermarket in about 50 years. Yeah, although there's some there's some argument about how true that was. Some are suggesting that he hadn't he hadn't yet seen the newest incarnation of the scanner technology. And so that's what he was asking about. Who knows? I want to go back to what you said at the very beginning of this episode, Bob, which I suggested we would end with, which is an observation by a guy named Benjamin Martin, who wrote a book called Institutions of Language in 1748. So this predates even Robert Loth's statements about two negatives either destroying one another or alternatively 
being a relic of an old multiple negation style. So Martin said simply that the double negative makes sense if you think about it algebraically. I think you said arithmetically. When you add two negative numbers, you get an even larger negative quantity, which is what Plotz and Al Jolson and the Rolling Stones understand. (laughs) When you multiply two negative numbers, however, you get a positive quantity, which is what Kipling and Carlyle understood. And that, if I could use yet another variety of the double negative, is nothing if not logical. (laughs) Wow, that is fantastic. That is so tidy how you made those connections at the end. I'm v- Mike, I am extremely impressed. It's very satisfying ending to this conversation, although I'm Robert loath to admit it. I'm feeling kind of bad now because I spent a great deal of this episode insulting you, and now here you are at the very end, killing me with kindness. Mm-hmm. As I tell people, you are not unkind. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, I, I would advise you, you know, that vague threat I made of uh, of payback. Don't even think about it. Just put it out of your mind entirely. <laughs> right. I know. Payback comes when you least expect it, right? Someday I'll be sleeping in my bed and I'll open my eyes to find you standing over me. You'll, you'll be awakened by that old man's smell. What, wait, what is that? <laughs> Bob? Bob? Are you here to harm me? And I'll say, I'm not here to... To not harm you. (laughs) So I just want to point out one last thing that that nothing if not construction, Mm -hmm. earliest known citation for it, Shakespeare. Whoa. Yep. I mean, what did that guy not invent? In Othello, Desdemona asks Iago if he were to say some nice words about her, what would he say? What would they be? And he replies... Oh, gentle lady, do not put me to it, for I am nothing if not critical. Wow. Although I can answer your question, um, the automatic pin setter. What was the question? What did Shakespeare not invent? Oh, okay. The automatic pin setter. That was some guy's name, Alexander Albrecht, William Huck, and David Sanford. So, hmm. you know. So not everything. Okay, if you want to write in and let us know other things that Shakespeare did not invent, please do so at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley, and please subscribe to our feed in iTunes, where you can leave a rating and a review. Feel free to sing our praises. I want to thank Joel Meyer, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, Mikey, we done here? We're not not done. <laughs> Later, Cater. Yeah.